What would the world look like if everybody had everything they wanted or needed? Treconomics, the premier book in financial journalist Felix Sam- Salmon's imprint Piper Text, approaches scarcity economics by coming at it backward through thinking about a universe where scarcity does not exist. Delving deep into the details and intricacies of the 24th century society, Treconomics explores post-scarcity and whether we, as humans, are equipped for it. Book Bash! Welcome to our book club podcast, where we pick a book to read each month that we then review. The best part is, you can join our book club! Just read the book with us and give your own feedback on the book and our reviews in the comments below. Be warned, if you haven't read the book and you want to listen to the show anyway, there will be spoilers. We choose the book for the next episode at the end of this one. I hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Alright, we're going we're gonna to talk about whether or not we are equipped for Star Trek. Indeed. Welcome back, people, to Book Bash. I'm, of course, your host, Josh. Joined as usual by Garner and Alex, and it's really hard to read with an eye patch. Yeah, turns out I actually use this, the other eye for reading. Nothing else much. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, Trickonomics was the book. Garner, you were the pick. Yeah. So I selected this book because um, I actually selected it less for its like fluffy. It's about Star Trek and more. <laughs> Because I was like, somebody's going to write something very interesting about a post-scarcity world. And I want to learn about, you know, like a well-thought-out argument about post-scarcity. How that might work. and The what, pros and cons. Yeah, what you would do to actually make post-scarcity happen and things like that. <laughs> um, so that's why I chose the book. I was really excited about post-scarcity. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of excited because some of that, as well as just being a Star Trek fan, I was interested to see a, some, like a, perhaps a more critical look at the setting and its uh, characters. Yeah, I was expecting almost like a game theory, like behind the scenes. Let's just think about this really deeply. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was expecting that. Uh, Alex, you also helped select a book? I like Star Trek. She likes Star Trek? Yeah. <laughs> That's Star right. Trek's good. Star Trek's good. So this book only like clocked in at eight and a half hours on Audible. It was fairly short for a nonfiction book. Yeah. And uh, let's see here. After listening to it, what did I like about the book? Well, I learned more about Star Trek than I did watching Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like... Like, there's this section, there's multiple sections of the book that talk about, like, the actors' feelings, Gil, you know, like, the writers and the writers' feelings, like, weird performance tricks they did, you know, on stage, or, like, you know, they, he talked about, like, they had, like, a studio and a glass bowl or something, and they had, like, a term (laughs) for it, they had, like, like, I learned so much about, like, how Star Trek was made, in its history, in the people around it, in the ideas that shaped it. Uh, I learned a lot about Star Trek. I, th- I think the book could have been like, all about Star Trek. Um, <laughs> I, I dare say it was. Uh, yeah, I, I, 
it was interesting. There was a lot more references than I expected, actually. And yes. It made me feel a lot like a nerd because I had wa- I'd grown up watching The Next Generation and then just kind of rolled into DS9 and Voyager after that. And then later in my adult life, went back and watched the classic series and Next Generation again because that was my favorite. And I was kind of surprised that even the more obscure references in this book, I could clearly remember. And the scenarios surrounding them, and I was like, oh, fuck, I forgot how much of a nerd I am for this show. <laughs> it's actually, I will credit Sedai this. Like, Sedai actually has watched Star Trek. Oh, yeah. Like, for sure. Right? Like, he's not phoning it in at all. Like, he clearly loves it. So that is actually a huge plus about the book. Yeah. That, like, he knows his Star Trek. Serious Trekkie. Yeah, super, super. Um, let's see here. Other things I liked about the book. I liked just some, um, just some fairly outlandish. Like, he's willing to go, like, full tilt on some of these, like, um, hypotheses he's got. I mean, he, he, he doesn't, like, he, he's not always, always just kind of, like, trying to say, oh, you know, it, it could be like this or maybe. No, he, he's, like, almost certain that it had to be this way. Sometimes that's actually kind of a negative. I'll get into that later. But it is interesting to see, like, how much he's committed to the ideas. And particularly crazy ideas. Like, he has this idea that, like, that the entire Starfleet and, uh, and Federation economy just runs off of prestige. By the way, I just have to say, no, it don't. No, it don't. <laughs> but, uh... But he does, he, he commits to it really hard. He, like, shows examples on the shows. I really loved his example of, like, Cisco's bar and, and how, you know, you, you want to work at Cisco's bar and there's, and there's only one job available. Mm. And, by the way, that, like, completely destroys the post-scarcity argument, but whatever. Um, but I liked it. I liked that aspect. What did you like about it, Josh? Um... I did sort of like to, I guess, sort of reemerge myself into this lore and setting and, and look at it from like a, a, a new and different perspective, like a slightly more pragmatic perspective, you could say. Mm, yeah. And that um, I also like how he tended to follow through on his swing with certain ideas. Like yeah. he proposed like this is what effect having this device in the setting would have on people and then followed that idea through fairly well. Um, and I also, uh, appreciated actually some of the sort of history into the show that you mentioned, like, he really gets into, like, some of the, the, you know, in the actor's studio sort of thing, and, um, Gene Roddenberry's sort of history with science fiction and, and how the show came to be through him and, and Gene Roddenberry's, um, sort of goals and... Um, I dare say, like, rule set in making the show what it was. Oh, gosh, I, had, I just have to mention this. One of the things I really liked is the book um, actually made me want to go and read other books. Like, he says at one point, there's an author that influenced Roddenberry. And Asimov. Roddenberry, well, he said Asimov, but there's a guy that uh, Roddenberry was actually critical of. And he was, oh. like, trying to make his not like that guy's. So he's, like, trying to, like, you, you know, yeah, he's making, yeah, like, the yeah. counterpoint of that. And I was like, okay maybe I want to read this. Like, what is this strange thing that, like, Roddenberry didn't like so much that made his hit franchise? Yeah, I also was, like, taking a few names down to 
to add to my audible wish list later, like including some of Asimov's work. Um, it turns out he's got some sort of science fiction noir that sounds kind of juicy. Yes. Yeah, so there, this book actually kind of gave like a reading list for other books, so that's kind of nice. <laughs> yeah. All right, sorry, I kind of jumped in on you. No, that's fine. Um, what else was there? I think that covers it. Okay. I have lots of favorite points. Okay. First, the specific examples from episodes. It was very clear that he like sat down and yes. rewatched everything, and yeah. he's like, this episode, this season, this character saying this thing, and he gave context around it for those that haven't seen it or don't remember the episode. Sure, he even like tried his very best to quote them with their accents. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> those parts were kind of funny for me because like experiencing it through the audio medium. A part of me kind of thought, like, Ugh, if I was producing this, I would have tried to get the rights to those audio clips and just use them instead. Because yeah. he's basically reading the script verbatim, and mm. I'm just like, and he talks about how great the performances are, but wouldn't it have been best if he could have gotten those performances <laughs> for the for the audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Okay, so... Um, my second point was <coughs> the science fiction history behind it, all the things that led up to Star Trek being made, even over the last... 200 years even like mary shelley frankenstein which is a seminal work in science fiction history um how he goes into a lot of highland and asimov and stuff like that because i grew up i grew up on old science fiction like that so that was really interesting to me seeing oh yeah i can tell where this is coming from now that it's been linked Mm -hmm. um probably my third favorite thing would be he clarified a lot of things about why I like Star Trek. Like, Star Trek versus Star Wars. Star Trek oh, yeah. is all about oh, yeah. the science. Star Wars is a lot more conflict. And I just don't want that. I want a more... How future... Like, an idealistic future. I don't want a step back in time with wars and crap. That mm-hmm. was just not appealing to me, which is why I don't like Star Wars much. Or his comparison of the new Star Trek movies are more like comic books with like these yeah. comic book background histories yeah and the old ones are just more grounded but my last point is actually his final chapter is one of my favorite things where he's like this isn't about space we're not going to go into space stop thinking that <laughs> he's like I love Star Trek but space isn't happening we just don't have I know, Gardner's giving me faces over here. Uh, I'm giving you the face. I'm giving you the face. Um, <laughs> I give you the face. There's, people don't go and explore. People only explore if there's economic incentive. Yeah, I that part I agreed with. And we may find economic incentive and go out and explore. But he's straight like, no, don't count on it. And that was just that kind of down-to-earth reality. A lot of people <laughs> think it's going to be this way, and it's really not. We're going to evolve the technology to overcome overpopulation. We're going to evolve the technology to overcome lack of food resources. We're going to start doing whatever. We're not going to go out and farm other planets to do it. I liked also, um, actually, I'm remembering now, there's a couple other points I liked. One is I liked how much he stressed that the post-scarity economy occurred in Star Trek before the invention of the replicator. Yeah. And I also like how he spent a chapter on the Ferengis and the Borg identifying how their economies um, stand in contrast to that, as well as in contrast to our current situation. Um, And then the other one thing you started to remind me of 
um, where he's talking about, like, or reminding you why you like Star Trek over some of the other space operas out there. And um, I also thought it was interesting how he talked a little bit about the, um, like, just some things that you can easily miss watching the show if you're not thinking about it. How, like, it's Star Trek The Next Generation is a show about workplace, um, about a workplace without workplace drama. I shit you not, it's like, uh, you just watch, like, a lot of staff meetings. Like, right. staff meetings that would occur in, like, a corporate environment. I never realized I was, like, watching a show about middle managers. And it, it's just so funny how, how the show manages to make this all compelling, even though, like, half of the dialogue is just fucking science jargon. Mm. You know, it's like, you don't really know what any of this means, but you are goddamn compelled. You know? Yeah, no. <laughs> Actually, he makes fun of that at some point. Like, like there's, like, this, there's, like, a chapter where... He keeps referencing some weird jargon, and then yeah. he's just like, just forget about it. No, no. And then he's just like, and then he'll say another thing. He's like, don't bark up that tree. I loved even, too, that he later, like, when he makes that statement about Star Trek Generation not, not having workplace drama, and, and he, he talks about how important that is in, in the show and setting, because, mm-hmm. the fe- you know, explains why the Federation wouldn't have this problem because of their post-city economy environment. But then later... When he's talking more about DS9, he then says, like, you see a lot more workplace drama in this series because you're dealing with a lot more aliens being a uh, fixed post, you know, like um, a fixed hub, like space dock. It's also kind of like a crappy job. And it's out on the fringe of the Federation. They just stole this base from the Cardassians. Yeah, it's not, it's not exactly great. Like, like yeah. he makes the point, he's just like, if you were on the Enterprise, like, you're the A-team, right? And yeah. if you're on Deep Space Nine, you're a loser. It's also, the, it's also this series that deals with much more heavy topics like a very serious war that they cannot get away from. And a lot more of this political dealing. Like, yeah, they with deal with a lot races. of the religion and a lot of the Bajoran politics a lot more. Yeah. It's interesting, like, I when I first watched Deep Space Nine, I didn't like it very much. I kind of liked just, like, the zaniness of uh-huh. old Star Trek. And then, like, as I got older, I, I liked Deep Space Nine more. One of the interesting things about it is, like, even though Deep Space Nine's very conflict-driven, it's not conflict-driven in, like, the way, say, Star Wars is. Right. Or even, like, Babylon 5. Or, you know, um, that, that fucking one with the Cylons. What's it called? Oh, uh, Battlestar Galactica. You know, like... Those are, like, essentially human dramas. Like, you could actually just take the sci-fi out of them, and you could just, like, slightly replace it. They they don't even need to be in those sci-fi settings half the time, (laughs) right? And uh, what's interesting about Deep Space Nine in in its conflict-driven stuff is that you... You see that, like, a lot of their troubles are actually caused by the fact that they have this technology. Like, uh... he doesn't bring it up in his book, actually, but, like, the Jem'Hadar, like, they're all, like, oh, they yeah. have, like, an entire, like, group of people who are, like, super addicted to this drug. Yeah. Right? And, and you know, it's just like, whoa. You know? And, of course, they can make as much of the drug as they want. They have damn replicators. There's no scarcity of the drug, so they can have an entire people completely hooked. And so it's interesting um, that he actually brings up... He actually spends a lot of time talking about Deep Space Nine, because... Yeah. Frankly, Deep Space Nine is sort of the counter-argument to, like, all happy, fun, and roses time. Yeah. yeah. I was talking with Morgan, my best friend, about this, and he's like, part of what makes Star Trek so interesting is 
a lot of it's about people trying to do good. Mm-hmm. And it's about yeah. people trying to live up to these Federation ideals, like especially in Deep Space Nine, but Voyager as well, when oh, they're yeah, out in the yeah. middle of nowhere trying to live up to these ideals and they're having to make deals with the Borg and fight off whoever it was, the Kazon. Oh, yeah. Um, and a lot of it's just, you know, what happens when people try and be good? What happens when they're faced with these bad situations and they're trying to be good people? Yeah, and that, that's an interesting reflection of the Federation because they're very much fish out of water, like almost pioneering through territory unknown, forcing a, carving a knife of, of good morals and values through space. <laughs> so, so before we get to the bad... For for the for the listener and, and just just in case maybe you didn't listen to the book or anything, but I do just want to like touch on like the point of the book, like the main premise of the book, because yeah. we've all read it, so so obviously like we know, but it's just I just like to bring it up again. So he essentially very strongly, and it's like this thing he starts from almost from the start of the book to the end. It's essentially constantly saying how it's not the technology that created post scarcity. He makes an argument from the beginning to the end that it's the society and and the choices they made and that fundamentally we could be a post-scarcity society. He is constantly trying to drive this wedge into the idea that it's the choices they make and the, and the choices they make as a society and that we could be that society. And uh, whether you agree with that or not, and by the way, I don't. But <laughs> but it is interesting. Like he's he's hammering that idea at home constantly that it's not the technology that makes the Federation so special. Like you know, his argument that he keeps bringing up is that the replicator came after, and it's absolutely true, right? The replicator comes in the later Star Trek. It comes in the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. When we have the people to, they don't need to worry about things, so they go off and they invent stuff, basically. Right. Um, <laughs> And, and so it's so he does have like this strong argument through the whole thing about you know about why the federation works but like on a social level and, and why he thinks that's actually the most powerful thing and that all their techno gizmos and whatnot is like it's like window dressing to like what makes them so special actually it's like actually not like the critical aspect I I have like some some complications with that. Like it's just like okay, well, then why are the Ferengi so good? It's funny too because he has a whole chapter about the Ferengi, yeah. but like, but why then? Right? Like if 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 what made the Federation so good is that, <laughs> then what made the Ferengi so good? Yeah. Just come on, Manu Sadai. Listen to this episode and tell me, <laughs> why are the Ferengi so good? In fact, if you know your Star Trek, they are stronger than the Federation. Stronger. Oh, hell, I should tweet this episode out of Jeez. I bet he'd listen. <laughs> <laughs> Just why? <laughs> Come on, man. Anyways. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to, like bring up like the main driving thrust of the book is about like this social idea and about like the character of our people and you know our government policies and well so you don't stuff like that so you don't like it because that's not actually what the book's about <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i mean he, he actually has this message right like i actually thought the book was going to be about like actual post-scarcity stuff and he's actually got like this idea of like essentially like redistribution of wealth is what makes star trek work so much 
Right. Yeah. That's that's essentially the thrust of his thing. <clears throat> so I actually haven't gotten into why I don't like it. I was gonna say, should we then make this transition? Yeah, I think we can. Let's I think start we your steamroll. Well, like, I'm not gonna poop completely hard. Maybe I'm overselling the heat that I want to give the book. The overall problem I have with the book, and I've already more or less mentioned this, is that it's called Treconomics. I expect some damn econ. There's like no numbers in this book. There is no like. There's not even like basic discussion about some of like the critical topics like he uses the words like he uses words like supply and demand uh-huh he even uses a word like a nash equilibrium at one point he used like, the word heuristics once yeah like he uses <laughs> words right but like my challenge to this so-called book about economics is that like he does not like actually acknowledge like just just basic Economics, right? Like, he actually acknowledges the idea that, like, okay, our societies are sort of built on this glue that, you know, you have to contribute something in order to get something back. And he, the main uh, economic idea that he actually explores in, in somewhat in depth, but makes, like, this bizarre circular argument about is um, the free rider problem. The free rider problem is this classic problem. Yeah. Free riding and the tragedy of the commons are actually the parts that he seemed to actually know what he's talking about a bit. But the rest of the time, I was just like, so where are you going to talk about the, you know, the thing? He's just like constantly just talking about the replicator, the replicator, the replicator, the replicator. I'm like, yes, I get it. <laughs> they have the replicator. The replicator you acknowledged has to be refilled with stuff. That is scarcity. Explain. No, because you can get the stuff from anything. You, you can, can go... get the stuff from anything, right? Yeah, they've yeah. got all those holographic labor camps. Yeah, they have the holographic <laughs> labor camps, right? Like, there's this whole challenge. Like, he doesn't get into, like... Like, when we think about scarcity, right? Like, scarcity involves all kinds of things. Like, it's funny, too, because he constantly, like, brushes up against it. Like, there's clearly scarcity in a federation. Like, he talks about how you can't get that sweet position or that sweet job. Not everybody can be in that room. Yeah. Right, that's still scarcity, right? There, there's scarcity of time and, and and just like basic logistics, but he just like completely avoids it. He just complete. He just constantly says that it's post scarcity. He doesn't prove it or discuss the actual um, foundations of this post scarcity economy. It's so bizarre, and it's and it's like so clear that it's not post scarcity. Like, why aren't there a hundred enterprises all going together? Aren't there a thousand? Why doesn't he address like the basic like post scarcity means <clears throat> infinite resources? <laughs> they don't have infinite resources. Yeah, and it's obvious. So why doesn't he discuss? Like he just completely ignores it. it. It drives me crazy the whole time. It should be noted for the listener that we actually looked it up beforehand, and he is not an economist. He is he studied the history of science and the history of economy. So I think right. that's a lot of why he didn't add specific numbers, but yeah, and and that's what, and that's why I'm not going to over attack like his number, right? I am just going to attack that he does not address like the obvious counter argument. The obvious counter argument yeah. is more. Why is there not more? Why is there so much restraint in the Federation? Why is there so much restraint? Period in Star Trek. He doesn't explain it. There's no reason for it if they have nearly infinite resources. 
Well, I think he does explain it some. People are trying to be good. They're trying to be better, mm-hmm. the prime directive. And I think part of it is it's just not in the Star Trek lore yet. Gene Roddenberry didn't come up with it. We have, right. like, the Bell yeah. Riots, and they talk about the Bell Riots some in the series, and everything changed after that. We started redistributing wealth. We started treating people better so that we wouldn't have riots again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I don't know. Well, I mean, like, just like I'm just saying, like, there should be, like, a lot of shit, right? Like, like you know what reminds me of post-scarcity? Minecraft. Minecraft is, like, post-scarcity. And you know what happens <laughs> in Minecraft? People do crazy shit because they have infinite resources. The only thing that's really holding them back is their skill and their time. And that's their, their, that's their real scarcity in Minecraft. Because otherwise, they're building, like, giant phalluses of gold. <laughs> Where are the giant phalluses of gold, Manus Sadai? Explain. Why don't I see that? It's interesting, though, because he talks about... He does just talk about that there must be, like, a massive free rider society in the Federation. But we don't yeah. see it a lot in the episodes, right? So, so he does touch on it a little bit. But that is, like, my chief... Complaint. Like, I felt really, really bait and switched on this book. I thought this is a book that was going to actually have some economics. And instead, I got a book that was mostly political commentary <laughs> by a very left-leaning person from Europe. Okay. For me, <clears throat> I felt that there was... Um, I could agree that I was expecting some more numbers or some more, like, um, hard economic, you know, uh, evaluation or dissection, I even, of the setting. But there just seemed to be, for me, there was so much hypothetical that it was hard for me to digest more than, like, two or three hours at a time. Like, I could not, you know, binge this book I had to take it in chunks because there's just so much of his his explanations and ideas that were like well hypothetically and then build on that hypothetical and so on and so forth and then deep lore references and such excuse me that it was uh, it was hard to keep it all in track in my head to sort of follow his narrative Um, the other thing is uh, I was also um, there's a few sort of lore points to me that I felt were kind of missing. Like, he talked about some of, like, the free riders and some of the um, more damaging aspects of this society, but it was clear that he's, like, a really bleeding-heart optimist, yeah. this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he just sort of straight ignores some of the more glaring in-house problems that the Federation has, like how almost every single ad- admiral portrayed in this series with the exception of like maybe a handful end up being corrupt and evil in some regard yeah assholes <laughs> yeah it's just he does touch on it a little bit like he like he talks about like you know how there's this evil cabal of assassins and he even talks he brings up in a book that Cisco assassinates someone yeah an innocent person yeah <laughs> right like but it is interesting to me that he's just like well you know I mean cause at least for what it's worth though like he the thrust of his argument it is actually on the econ side. So he's not trying to say that no bad things would ever happen. He's just trying to say that because, like I said, you know, like going back to why I wanted to bring it up before we got to the bed. Yeah. To me, I feel like overall he keeps 
he's like, we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. And he's trying to say, we can do this. No, it's not going to be perfect, but we can do it. Yeah. And that's and, that, and that's why it felt so weird. That's why I feel like he ignores so much stuff. Because well, the book's actually political commentary. I felt like, uh, I felt almost like the late half of the Ferengi chapter, um, which was probably the more captivating one for me, um, for some yeah, reason. I, I like the Ferengi chapter. It was good. Why. It, but probably because it hit closer to home. Because <laughs> well, he finally starts to address, like, some arguments against him. Well, also, he kind of, like, basically, because the Ferengi are so ridiculously capitalist, and which is probably the closest economy in the setting to an American economy, yeah, yeah. he also sort of walks through the steps on even how, at the end of DS9, the Ferengi are beginning to transform into a more um, uh, agreeable society with the Federation. Right. Or slightly slowly kind of rising up to Federation levels and he's like basically going like this their journey in DS9 is the journey we could be making <laughs> you know uh, the other thing I didn't like uh, was um, there's like some he made like all these arguments that were it was fine if one side did it but I guess not fine if the other side did it and it felt <laughs> weird like he kept doing this like, like just for example like I just thought it was just so weird in the um, in the Ferengi chapters, right? Like he's talking about how the Ferengi have um, this society where they're making all the, they're they're getting things together. They got their because they're this powerful empire and they have the replicator and everything's working out for them. Cool, right? And then later when the the Federation is doing the same shit, yeah, it's okay when they do it. And it feels weird. It's like, like he even talks about, um, like, there's like some arguments that just make no sense. It's like, like, like this whole free trade thing. Like he essentially is trying to attack the concept of free trade. And 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 at one point in the book, he says that it's clear that market forces are causing all nations to rise. And just three decades ago, these Chinese people, you know, were living like they were in, you know, the 1600s or something, right? Uh -huh. And he even brings this that part up. So he's for free trade and says it's great and it's making all these people work. And then later he's like, no, it's bad. And the Ferengis are bad and everybody who does it is bad <laughs> and it's bad and stupid and it doesn't work. And I was like, which one is it? Which one is it, buddy? Like, you either acknowledge actual facts, actual history, or you acknowledge your TV show. Which one, buddy? And it feels so weird because, like, on one hand, he's, like, trying to attack our system. And I'm fine with that. He can do that. Right? He attacks, like, Anne Rand, and he should. Yeah. Fuck her. Right? And, uh, and you know, a lot of people who support Anne Rand call themselves libertarians. <laughs> and I'm not sure. You know, by the way, you know, Manu Sadai, I just want you to know that Anne Rand followers call themselves objectivists. And they follow a philosophy called objectivism. And they're not libertarians. <laughs> just put it out there. Just put it out there, buddy. I just thought you should know. Just just look it up. Hit you a little close to home there. Well, it was felt so weird because I was like, no, yeah, I've heard some libertarians who talk like this. That's fine. Yeah. But then, like, he kept bringing up, like, Ayn Rand and, like, the, pe the people he actually specifically mentioned. And I was like, I don't think you know. <laughs> and I was like, you, these people don't even call themselves that. I don't think you understand anymore. That's like... Um. <laughs> okay, back to free trade. I think that his point on 
free trade being good for China and Korea, but bad in Ferengi's is more that free trade is a stepping stone. It's like a phase that we have to go through to get to be better. Yeah. And so, so by the way, that, that would be my third point. There's like this very strangely, like, it's very pro-communist. Like, like the communists, <laughs> like, actually have the, like, the Soviet Union actually was like, yeah, we're doing, like, all this, like, really autocratic stuff, but we're meant to be, like, the super democratic thing, but we have to go through, like, the trial period of communism, and, and even the the hardcore communist writers talk about how there's there has to be this transition, <laughs> and I'm just, just, you know, like, I don't know, right, like, I don't know, you know, like, you know, China is transitioning back to a market economy, just putting it out there, okay, but yes. You're thought, right. He probably is just trying to say there's a transition. I also found it interesting that he, um, you know, makes this strong argument really in the book about how the Federation is this uh, reputation-based economy. Oh. Um, and he, he, I think it's only in the beginning of the book where he really talks about the Klingons in any kind of detail, but he just sort of lightly brushes on them. And when I was thinking back, I'm like, you know, the Klingons are an even better example of a reputation economy. Having a society so, like bizarrely bent around honor and achievement. Uh-huh. Like, like that is so important to them that they even announce their lineage when they're greeting each other. Yeah, but in the series, there's a lot of political backstabbing. Like, it should be based on it in Klingon society, but there's a lot of, like, backhanded and stupid stuff. Like, Well, yeah, because they, they tend to prize physical um, prowess over necessarily, like, scalicular achievement. And so that's probably where the Federation and them really schism is because they're like, you know, oh, you can best me in battle, and then you're really good. Yeah, you're going to go. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, like, you know, you just touched on the whole, like, prestige economy thing. I just, I'm, I'm like, you know, like, I had this challenge with this. I was like, if this is true, then in some ways, the entire foundation of their system is like this popularity contest. Yeah. You want to be as likable and then as popular as you can be. And I was like, why isn't Adolf Hitler the leader of the Federation then, right? <laughs> the fuck are you talking about, right? Like, you just want to be the most charismatic, most likable person. Why isn't Justin Bieber the head of the starship? You know, like, his argument actually made sense if you just take the first series. I was like, yes, actually, if the society was based completely on reputation and popularity... James T. Kirk is just that cool and likable. And that's why he's on board that starship. You're saying that PewDiePie will be the next starship? PewDiePie, yeah, a YouTuber. <laughs> YouTuber, he'll, he'll be the XO. There, PewDiePie will be sitting next to him. Yeah. Like, well, I think it is based on prestige, but it's not necessarily based on likability. There are a lot of scientists in Star Trek that have a lot of prestige, but they're assholes. Yes. Like, they just end up being recluses because they can't stand anything and everything, but they right. still have that kind of reputation. They could use that reputation as currency for just about anything, even if they're assholes. Yeah, it was interesting because, like, I don't fully disagree with the idea. I was just like, yeah, but like... It seemed like a reasonable argument, but I would like to hear some counter-arguments. I, mean, I just, I just like, the implications of this, like, 100% popularity society yeah. is, is, like, 
wait a moment, that sounds horrible to live in. I'm kind of glad <laughs> like, that... He, what if you're the unlikable person? I know, I'm kind of glad that he brought up Lieutenant Barkley, because that's where my mm. mind immediately jumped to. I was like, I would be so stressed in this environment. Yeah, I would be like, this would be horrible, right? Like, you like, you don't see a lot, like, the beggar of the Federation Society, but, like, you yeah. just got to imagine, like, um, he actually, he does bring it up briefly, though. Um, Bashir's father. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like a has-been... He's not even that. He, like, can't achieve anything, right? Yeah. And how horrible and shameful that is. And, like, the steps his parents go through. And so, like, I was just like, doesn't this mean that this entire society and the foundation it's built on is, like, corrupt? Like, <laughs> awful? It's, yeah. like, it's like the worst form of Athens. Why don't you think that, Madhu Sedai? Why don't you think that's horrible? Right? Of course for the upper class elites it seems like paradise. It seems like that for communists too, by the way. I'm also kind of surprised that there is so little touched on the sort of military aspect of the Federation. Yeah. Because it's very clearly also that. You know? Because <clears throat> so. like, as much as like the Enterprise D in Next Generation is a uh, an exploration vehicle... Like, any time there's a major conflict, they call them in. (laughs) I mean, yeah, there's this whole thing. Like, he... I mean, he does talk about it a little bit. That they have, like, some sort of, like, task... That he kind of sees it as, like, some sort of task force. Like, some sort of, like, special task force they got going on. It's like when the Borg are attacking, do you really want to call a ship that's half full of civilians? Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, you know, I mean, somebody's got to know how to a do science it. Science vessel, no less. It, it doesn't bother me too much that there's they have this military thing, but it does feel weird in like this popularity based society. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. Like, I, I just I just challenge like the basic idea. Like, it's it's interesting because sometimes he will explore an idea deeply and like address the counter arguments. Like the whole Ferengi chapter is him trying to address the counter argument, but. He, like the, unfortunately, the premise that it's this prestigious society. I'm just like the counter argument is that Athens, Hitler, <laughs> Donald Trump, right? Like yeah. Justin Bieber. Like if if it was based on like how much you're so popular and so likable and have such a good reputation, that's that is a very soft way to build, <laughs> you know, to have any transactions. And it just felt weird to me, and. uh Oh, no, I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't buy into the idea. Well, I mean, even our current military is a reputation-based reputation society. Absolutely, it's I will agree with that. It's reputation on how well oh. you did in various situations, and same thing Merit-based. there. You get to be an admiral in Starfleet because you did well in the military. Yeah, absolutely, though, I will agree. The military, particularly the American military, is like that, right? Like, a lot of people who are even the, the best guys are not actually selected. The, um... You know, a lot. If you're like the best at what you can do, you probably aren't in the military. You're in the <laughs> private sector, yeah. making lots of money, right? Like the our military serves like the most average people, and it fits them perfectly. Fits them like a glove, because otherwise you you don't make any money. And so it's it's interesting. So in there, well, there you go, man. That's why that's why the civilian ship is called in the battle. <laughs> that's why the civilian ship is called in the battle. <laughs> Full, full, full of those civilians on board and their families and kids. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's why their pleasure cruiser is, you know, riding around. It, it is interesting. He does address that it is essentially like a cruise ship in space. Yeah. Like armed with like torpedoes and shit. Yeah. So that's that's a thing. <laughs> right? But yeah, I agree, Alex. It is, um, our military is like that. And like if you are like the most likable or charismatic, you might be selected for promotion. 
over someone who is not likable, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Even if both people do the same the job the same way, or maybe one guy performs harder, that's not really the critical deciding factor in your review board. What really kind of matters is whether or not the guy above you said that you should be up. So, so you know. Um, yeah. So, Alex, did you have any complaints that haven't been addressed? <laughs> I think they've all been addressed. It's generally just the bait and switch. It felt like it should have been yeah. a history book on Star Trek. Granted, I don't think I would have picked it up if they just said the history of Star Trek. I probably would have. Yeah. Just ignored it. But yeah, I thought it was interesting that he kind of opened with a little bit of his personal history with the series and mentioned how this is the one book he could not find, so yeah. he just wrote. I would have been okay if he was like, if he had said that the book was essentially like this political commentary book, because it's this very left-leaning book, an attack yeah. on the right, an attack on the free markets, and he wants to like discuss about how our society could be better. I'm fine with that. I think if he had actually said like, how you know if he'd sold the book as how Star Trek could make our future better, or you know how we could explore the ideas of Star Trek and apply them to our politics today. Sure. You know if he if it had been addressed and sold as that book as you know essentially the political philosophy of Star Trek, you know I probably still would have read it. But instead, I was like. Instead, I ended up getting, like, a whole chapter, essentially, about, like, why the West and all the things they do are bad. <laughs> like, I'm like, okay, Amani Sedai, yeah, I hope you realize that you are a part of the West and that you are a rich white man who benefits from it. Well, I doubt he's white. He is <laughs> Israeli or something? He might not actually be white. Anyways, so, would you recommend the book, Garner? Ooh. <sighs> Uh, yeah, I should have thought about this before I sat down, huh? Would you recommend it to a Star Trek fan, and would you recommend it to an economics fan? I would absolutely recommend it to a Star Trek fan. I mean, I don't even like Star Trek uh, that much, and uh, I felt I thought it was you know very uh, reasonable. We got pictures here. Yep. <laughs> Seems pretty uh, white. So I'll go with it. Also, it he is. looks good in that Trek uniform. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend it to Star Trek fan, and especially because, like, you know what? He, he knows his Star Trek. It's oh, actually yeah. compelling to listen to him, like, make arguments about the episodes and whatnot. Like, he can actually remind you and rekindle your love of Star Trek, so that's amazing. I'm not sure I would recommend it to any economics people. I mean, I actually think that if you were going in, if, if you listen to this podcast and then decide to go listen to it or read it, then you just know that you're going in, going in for a political you know, a political argument, and then it won't be too bad. I, I really feel like the most damning aspect of the book is that it comes off as one thing, and it's not about that. It's yeah, not. I, I would probably recommend the book to you, especially to Trek fans. Um, I felt it was a very interesting dive into the setting. Um, I would say that, uh, in spite having to take it into little chunks, I felt that, on the whole, it was a, it was a pretty good... Um, look at it, but it did feel like there just was a few puzzle pieces missing by the end of it. And um, I, I got a question for you then. Okay. And I and I'm kind of posing this to myself. If it was two hours longer, but it had like a lot more like counter arguments addressed, would it be better? Um, 
Probably. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm inclined to say yes, only because I like the sort of full picture of you, you know? I like a person who can challenge their opinions. <laughs> yeah. Like, I actually do... Like, it's interesting because the last few books we've um, done, like, I find myself saying, he could have cut this down. He could have cut this down. Oh, yeah. This might be the first book where I'm like, he could have wrote more. Yeah. He should have wrote more. <laughs> <laughs> so... That's my recommendation. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed it, uh, especially for its sort of Trek history. And I, I, I do feel like I want to go back and watch more Deep Space Nine and Voyager. You know, I'm actually just going to say it. I, I don't recommend a book. I'm sorry. <laughs> I even chose the book. I don't recommend it. There we go. That's my final verdict. Don't, don't listen to this book and don't read it. There you go. I'm done. I would recommend it. I have recommended it to my cousin and her husband, who are very All much right. Star Trek fans. I would not recommend it to anybody who is looking for a serious look into economics. But for a Star Trek fan, for the history behind it, and even to science fiction fans, like fans yeah. of Highland, fans of Asimov, to see the how the pieces fit together. Yeah, it's crazy. Like the you even mentioned my boy Gibson. Yeah, like the science, uh, like the just going into science and like how science fiction is written and the books behind it and the history of Star Trek and like the ideas and like going into like you know how how certain episodes were clearly targeted at like Vietnam or communism or or like the political environment. He even brings up Ronald Reagan in this book. Like the <laughs> history in this book is fantastic. Oh yeah, it's like. Unfortunately, is I just wish it didn't have the premise. <laughs> right? Then I could recommend it. Then I could recommend it, but I just can't. I forgot about his talk about GPS and Reagan. That was really. It was so good. It was yeah. so good, and it was um, uh, for what it's worth. It was like the strongest yeah. argument he had for like why you should just go all in and not worried about who pays for it, sort of deal, right? And, and, and what's funny, though, because he's obviously super left-leaning. Like, the whole time he's like, but then Reagan did it. How? Isn't that weird? <laughs> right? Because cause Reagan is, like, considered, you know, like, the bastion of the right, God yeah. himself, the Messiah. So it must feel really weird for him to say that. Right? I'm like, I'm like I don't think it's weird. <laughs> I don't think it's weird. But, uh... But yeah, like, it's so good. Like, the history parts of the book are just so good. So, like, on one hand, I want to be like, you should read the book because it's compelling history stuff. Just skip all that that nonsense. Okay, that's half the book. That's more than half the book. So it sounds like (laughs) Trek fans definitely check it out. Econ fans, uh, take it with all the salt. Well, like, I'm not not (laughs) just going to say econ fans. My biggest challenge is, like, let's say you're Brady. Brady, are you listening? And you are like, I want to explore this crazy idea. I I want to explore a hypothetical idea. I think (laughs) if you just like to explore hypothetical ideas, you would still be disappointed. (laughs) You would still come out going like, what? That's my feeling. That's my feeling. Fair enough. Fair enough. Maybe it's not fair. I haven't bashed the book that I recommended enough. <laughs> I, maybe I just said buyer's remorse. That's why I said salty. His hammer craves more. More. <laughs> more. I mean, Take I, this bleeding heart, <laughs> Optimus. Take this. <laughs> it was funny. Like, I actually don't fully disagree with, like, all his arguments. I just think that it was 
<laughs> I was just like, I have to admit, there were several times listening to this book where I was like, ooh, Garnet's have, have words here. Oh, Garnet's <laughs> going to have words about this segment. <laughs> well, you know, like, it was really funny because I was thinking about it. I was like, because once I, once I got into the idea that, like, he's clearly just, like, attacking everything on the right. Yeah. And the free markets in general, I was like, okay. So I, I can just, let's just listen to his arguments and just go with the vitriol, right? <laughs> I can do this. And then... Uh, and so then it wasn't too bad, because, like, normally if, like, some book was, like, going to mention, I don't know, libertarians. And by the way, this guy probably says libertarian 20 times in this book. Just pulling it out there, right? Like, normally that would just, like, drive me crazy. But I, uh, but instead I just wanted to just bring up the Ayn Rand thing, because he brings up particular names. And I was just like, I don't know. <laughs> it felt so weird. It was like... At times I was like, is he associating Reagan with libertarianism? Because he's not. So I, so I gotta ask, Arne, do you feel like you were more politically, personally attacked in this book, or more so by Bill Nye's Unstoppable? Uh, no, Bill Nye, actually, Bill Nye was out, he was he was looking for me. He was out for blood? B- Bill, Bill Nye, he wanted to fucking knock me out, right? Like, Bill Nye, Bill, not also did Bill Nye, actually, here's the big thing, Bill Nye did know who I am, and he fucking was calling me out. This guy, this guy is from Europe and doesn't even know what the fuck he's talking about. Okay. Bill Nye was calling me out. This guy, this guy, like, I'm just like, you got the wrong guy here. And Reagan, by the way, is not a libertarian either. Just want to put that out there. Jeez. All right. Well, I think, I think that's all I got. Yep. There you go. I'm, I'm done. Well, I guess we get to move on to my suggestions for the month. It is your pick. I'm slathering for more, for more rage. Well, I picked one specifically for Garner, and oh it ties into oh thinking boy. fast and slow. Actually, oh. I guess two tie into fast and slow, but this one in particular is The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, and it is the biography of Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman and how they came to build behavioral economics. The fuck? It is straight their biography, how they did this. Um, wow. What you say it's called? It is called The Undoing Project. Huh. This is probably about that one segment in Thinking Fast and Slow where they're talking about how hard it was for them to quit that one project, even though they had <laughs> predicted that it would go poorly and that it would take forever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Possibly. Like, I read some of the Amazon reviews, and they were like, this is really about the love story between Kahneman and Tversky and their science, and how they were so passionate about their science, and how they really turned the world upside down with all this stuff. So, it sounds like it's going to be a lot of kind of behind-the-scenes stuff from Thinking Fast and Slow, and hopefully it won't be quite as dry. (laughs) You know, I I will admit, (laughs) I'm a terrible person. I think out of the books we've listened to so far, Thinking Fast and Slow is my favorite book. <laughs> I will admit, it's had the most change on me. Like, I've definitely felt changed after reading that book. But I actually find myself quoting uh, the Dalai Lama more. Particularly his story about the monk who's, like, constantly telling his fellow... <laughs> telling him that, you know, he's gonna go, and then it ends with him dying. I keep telling that story. Well, my second pick is Willpower Instinct, which I've tried to float before. It is by Dr. Kelly McGonigal. She is a professor at Stanford, I believe, and she runs this course 
on willpower and it's a lot of thinking fast and slow put into practice like the tagline is even how self-control works why it matters and how you can get more and it really goes through a lot of studies and says you know try this out for yourself the whole book is about trying it for yourself seeing what works seeing what doesn't and understanding why we have willpower issues and how to overcome them it's like a self-help book but then they actually try to back it up yes they back it up with a lot of science (laughs) that's the difference which one was it the willpower instinct. Willpower instinct. Yeah, the willpower instinct. Oh, yes. Um, and I've read it several times, which is why it keeps getting shot oh. down every time I suggest it. Yeah, because you read it before. <laughs> Not only once, but it is good enough that I've read it several times. Um, and it, it's funny. It has, like, comparisons between tigers attacking you and cheesecakes attacking you. And how your primitive self thinks of them in similar ways. Um, this box of cookies is like a tiger. Yes. <laughs> I would agree. Tiger on my waistline. <laughs> and then my last pick is the utterly uninteresting and unadventurous tales of Fred the Vampire Accountant. What in the world? It is a young adult mystery novel about Fred the Vampire Accountant and his completely uninteresting tales. No, I'm... You so know, it sounds very interesting. Yeah, like, like already I'm like, wait a moment, is this Snow Crash where it's actually about the sword-wielding pizza delivery driver? Because that's the book I wanted to read. <laughs> Neil Stevenson, right? That book. I want, to know, I want to read about the pizza delivery driver. I don't care about ancient Sumeria or whatever. So there we go. A biography, a self-help book, and a young adult novel. Mm. Interesting. Quite a choice. Hmm. Hmm. Scott Yeah, okay, so on one hand, I really love the tie-in with Thinking Fast and Slow. On the other hand, I traditionally am bored to tears when I do any biographies. And I'm not sure why. I actually just think most biographies are terribly written. That's a problem, right? Like, like if if it's about like in, in like an ancient Roman dude, they tend to be all right. But then if they're modern takes, they tend to be like they tend to be like overly aspirational. <laughs> right? Uh, so uh, you know, I don't know. So I'm torn on that. Um, I'm actually interested in the second book, but Alex is right; she's already read it. So I'm kind of like, come on, come on. I'm starting to feel the uh, um, the familiarity bias with that one. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think I've only suggested <laughs> it one other time, but no, no. But um, <laughs> I'm actually sort of interested in that. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking about going with that one because as much as I want to do the vampire thing, I have to admit the vampire does tickle my fancy on absurd on the absurdity level it's like freakazoid <laughs> level like this 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 ridiculously long name book title i'm like hmm what silliness lie here but uh i think my first pick will probably would probably be the willpower instinct i think i'm gonna cave and also go with the willpower instinct all right so that is the willpower instinct by kelly mcgonagall Narrated by Walter Dixon on Audible. Yep. Oh. All right. So, uh, and how many hours is this book? Are were we in for a doozy? Eight hours and 20 minutes. Okay, so it is shorter than Treconomics. This doctor can make an argument about every self-help strategy she can 
in less time than this guy can explain to me why free markets don't work and why they somehow made China work. I just don't know what to say. Maybe it's because she's got a doctorate. PhD. Just pulling it out there. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode and join us for the next book. We will see you all next time. I'm sorry, Manu. Yeah, Manu. Let us know Look, who I, this episode. I'm going to tweet it at you. Hey, you gave me some content, man. I, really I You know, it's, it's called Book Bash. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed. Sound effects provided by the F Sound Man, and music provided by Ben Sound. Why not tell us what you thought of our review in the comments? And join us next time on... Book Bash!